You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, it is truly a joy to be in your presence once again. And thank you for all these dear saints who rose early this morning because they love your truth and they want to learn how to better defend it. They want to learn how to reach the hearts of others who need you. And Lord, they're here because they have a passion for your truth. They have a love for you and a zeal for your church. And so bless them today. Give us your Holy Spirit. We need you. We need your presence, not just in the room, but in our hearts to transform us for this day. And this day, we commit ourselves to you to live for you. So as we take a look at some of these wonderful things that many people don't even know or are aware of, we pray that you would draw near and open our eyes and our ears to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we are continuing our series on atheism, and we saw yesterday how the Bible actually predicted the rise of the atheistic movement. How many of you saw that yesterday? From the Bible and from the spirit of prophecy, it's very clear that God was not surprised by atheism. Amen? And uh, many Christians are overwhelmed today. They're just almost afraid of the atheists because they seem to have such logical arguments and the atheists will make the point that Christians can't answer their questions. And, and, but what I've found is that almost all of the questions can be answered. And some questions we, we, don't, we won't know the answer to until eternity, but we do have a good framework to help us understand that in an intelligent way. And so today we're going to start looking at some of the evidence for the validity of the Bible. So what I'm going to share with you are 10 of the most incredible archaeological discoveries that we've had in modern times. So there are actually many, many more, but these are some of the main ones, some of the key ones that a lot of people don't even realize, a lot of Christians don't even realize. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. But I want to share with you some interesting facts about archaeology. From Genesis to Revelation, there is not a single book in the Bible that cannot draw support from the field of archaeology. In other words, every book of the Bible can draw some form of evidence from archaeology that the Bible was telling the truth when it said what it said. Okay? Now, I have a degree, I have a Bachelor's of Science degree. When I was, before I was a Christian, uh, I was studying uh, GIS, Geographic Information Systems. Anybody know what that is? It's basically advanced computerized map making. And they use it for city management, they use it for defense, they use it in business, they use it in a lot of ways. And it's a very new technology and you can actually make a lot of money doing it. But that's what I got my degree in. Now, part the other that was half of my degree. The other half of my degree was uh, geoarchaeology. So I studied anthropology, I studied evolution, I've done sev I did several archaeological digs from the perspective of, um, you know, we used to do a lot of Native American sites. I, I got my degree in Alabama. But I do have an understanding of archaeology. And when I started to study the Bible, I told you yesterday, I studied the Bible to try to prove it what? False. Before I was going to commit suicide. And uh, when I tried, when I began to look at some of the evidence, I had no idea about some of these biblical uh, truths 
uh, about archaeology, that, that there is a lot of evidence in the ar archaeological realm. So welcome, guys. I, I don't know if there's a few seats here and there, so we'll have to do our best. Secondly, although archaeology in itself does not prove that the Bible is inspired, prophecy does. So archaeology doesn't prove that the Bible is inspired. It can't. All it can do is produce, literally, cold, hard facts, right? But what archaeology does do is it proves that the historical accuracy and trustworthiness of many biblical passages. It gives the Bible credibility as a tangible, credible source. In other words, what archaeology does is it demonstrates that, and I'm going to show this to you through many examples, that many times skeptics will say, we don't find any evidence for what the Bible says here in history or whatever. But many times they'll dig up something that says, aha, it proves exactly what the Bible said. And in every circumstance, in biblical archaeology, every time something has been discovered, it's never contradicted what the Bible account was. It's always matched it. And that's very exciting. Amen? Very, very exciting. So again, every book can be supported by archaeological evidence. There's never been an artifact recovered or an archaeological finding discovered that disproves any biblical account. And number three, every biblical archaeological find has always supported the biblical account and biblical accuracy. I mean, I mean for you, that gives you confidence in what the Bible says. Amen? Now, as Seventh-day Adventists, we already have confidence in what the Bible says. We don't necessarily need archaeology, but it is nice. It is helpful. It is good. All right. I'm glad to see our class is growing, I think. So we're going we're gonna to start here with number one. Number one is, <clears throat> not number one is in, this is the top one, but number one in our talk today. Number one is the city of Ebla, discovered by Payalo, and I forget how to say his name, Matie, in the 1970s. Now, the city of Ebla is very significant for several reasons. Because what it does is it, it, a lot of the things that they discovered there point to the Old Testament biblical pro, uh, patriarchs. And so, uh, this city, in this city, they found 15,000 clay tablets dating back to the year 2300 BC. That's really, really old. Okay? Now, when they found these tablets, uh, let me just jump to this. I mentioned this, that it coincides with the time of the biblical prophets. They provide an abundance of information on biblical place names. So some of these tablets describe several places that are named in the Bible, such as Sodom and Gomorrah, previously thought to be mythical uh, cities by scientists. And several other names are mentioned, such as Hazar, Megiddo, Lachish, Dor, Gaza, Joppa, Damascus, and others that are found where? In the Bible. So here is external evidence. Here is secular evidence from other civilizations not connected to the biblical history that are naming the same places that the Bible talks about, which gives evidence that they actually what? Existed. Now, I want to tell you something. Just because you can't find something doesn't mean it didn't exist. You understand? <laughs> doesn't mean it didn't exist. And uh, we'll kind of talk a little bit more about that later. 
So uh, this is one of the most recently discovered uh, clay tablets, and some of those have even uh, more specific names, such as Esau, David, Saul, and Ishmael. Another tablet actually says the name of the city Jerusalem. So these clay tablets are giving more and more evidence that what the Bible says happened and the places that existed are actually true. The second one I want to share with you is the Hittite nation. Now the Hittites are mentioned. You have the Hittites and the Perizzites and the, all the ites, right? And uh, the all-worshipped idols, the idolites, I call them. But the Hittites are mentioned 47 times in the Bible. But for the longest time, scientists said they never existed because they literally had no evidence for their existence. And they said, they actually said, skeptics of the Bible said, the fact that the Bible mentions some civilization 47 times and we have literally no evidence for this is absolute proof that the Bible is a book of fairy tales. They're just inventing these weird things and there's no evidence. But then something happened. In 1906, the capital city of the Hittites and 1,200 years of their civilization's history were discovered in Turkey. How you can say amen. amen. So here's some picture, or I'm sorry, uh, before we get to that, the Hittite Empire ruled the area of modern Turkey and existed from about the 1300s to the 1700s BC. And you know, often the Hittites were enemies of the Israelites and they would, they would fight them and give them trouble all the time and so forth. And so this is the great temple of Hattusha, the capital city of the Hittites. And you can see that 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 whole area is part of the uh, part of the city. This is the Lion Gate entrance to the city. You can see uh, some of the, the the remains of the lions there. They, of course, through time they've been uh, you know deformed and so forth. This is a relief carving of one of the gods that they worshipped, and uh, those types of carvings were found throughout the city in different places. Uh, so there's just all kinds of abundance. Here is a tunnel that they found that went underneath the city, and I believe it was some kind of escape route for the king or whatever if he found himself in trouble. So that is very fascinating. Now, there's something called the Sumerian King's List. Has anyone heard of this? And this list is an ancient tablet that was discovered in the Hittite, with the Hittites that, uh, that talked about kings who lived and reigned for very long periods of time. Now, this, is not, this is not something that they discovered by Moses or Abraham. This is actually outside of the biblical um, culture, so to speak. It's related to the biblical culture. Now this tablet talks about these kings that reigned for long periods of time, and then it talks about a great flood that took place over all the earth, in which there was a break when no kings reigned. And then following that, the reign of kings became much what? Shorter. Why would it become shorter? Because they're not living as long, you see. So this is very fascinating. This was discovered also among the Hittites. Uh, very, very incredible. Now, one of the other things that was discovered was a description of the Assyrian king Sargon who was thought to be a mythical legend because the Bible up to that point was the only book that talked about his existence. 
However, his palace was discovered among the Hittite ruins, and on the walls of the palace was recorded the, uh, the record of his capture of Ashod, which is actually described in the book of Isaiah chapter 20. So they found it. Once again, they found it. So what happened to the mouth of the skeptic? Had to close at least for a while, right? At least for a while. Let's keep going here. Sodom and Gomorrah, again, was thought to be a mythical place that the Bible described, full of fairy tales and so forth. Uh, but it was actually found as to be in the exact geographical location that the Bible described it. And it was discovered that it was a center of commerce, just like the Bible describes. It was a place where people often cross from journeying other places to be able to do their trading and so forth. From the book of Christian Apologetics um, by, uh, through uh, Baker Encyclopedia by Norman Geisler, he says, There is even evidence that the layers of sedimentary rock were molded together by what? Intense heat. And evidence has, of burning has been found on Mount Sodom. So this is Dr. Stephen Collins, and he's here in some of the area where they believed that it was. That it was. And there's literal brimstone burning. Uh, it's burnt there where they found that um, to be. You can see it right there as well. Then that, and the, that's, that stuff is all over that entire area. And there's literally nothing there. I mean, you see what's there. It's just barren rock because everything was completely burned. So, Sodom and Gomorrah are mentioned in Genesis 13 as two of the five cities of the plain. The other cities are Adma, Zeboim, Zor, and Bela. These five cities are also confirmed in the Ebla tablets. So, they are confirmed in the Ebla tablets as actually having existed at some point of time, and it's recorded in a place other than the Bible. Amen? Now, for you and me, all we need is the Bible. Amen? Yeah. We, we don't worry about these. Other, but for people who are skeptical of the Bible, they need what? They need evidence. And this was me. When I was an atheist and I started learning these things, I was like, no one's ever said these things to me. You know, All I get is the theory of evolution, which even when I was an atheist, it just kind of seemed like there were all kinds of holes in it. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that later in the week. But, uh, very exciting. So, we've looked at three. We may even get done before. We can ask some questions if we do. But number four is Luke as a historian. Which books of the, of the Bible did Luke write? The book of Luke, right? And the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts especially, he talks about several different places that they would travel and visit. Okay? And, you know, over the course of time, sometimes even the names of countries will change, but certainly the names of cities change and places, they just change. People, they vote to rename them and so forth. So sometimes what was named in one era of time is different in later times, right? And so Luke would name a number of places that they would visit, and for the longest time, skeptics said these places never existed. We have no, no confirmation of this in secular history. Uh, so they attacked him as an inaccurate historian. But notice this. Our, since that time of the initial attacks, archaeologists have identified most of the cities, rulers, uh, and places mentioned in the book of Acts. 
In all, from the Baker Encyclopedia of Christian Apologetics, in all, Luke names 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine islands without an error. And what they once believed he was so much an error, error in is now confirmed. So notice this statement from Merrill Unger. He's an archaeologist of the New Testament. He says, The Acts of the Apostles is now generally agreed in scholarly circles to be the work of Luke, to belong to the first century, and to involve the labors of a careful historian who is substantially accurate in his use of sources. Luke was one of those meticulous people that just wrote all the facts and figures down vehemently. You know what I'm talking about? You know those kind of people? And uh, I'm not one of those kind of people. But I love those kind of people because we need those kind of people. And these kind of people like make excellent church treasurers. Amen? And sometimes they're a little bit cranky in their personality, but we still love them. Amen? It's because they have such stress protecting the Lord's money. So, <clears throat> for many years, they thought he wasn't. Now look at this. A.N. Uh, Sherwin-White, he writes this as well. For, the, for Acts, the confirmation of historicity is overwhelming. Any attempt to reject its basic historicity must now appear absurd. Roman historians have long taken it for granted. So, it, so, so here, here's what it comes to. At one point... In the, in the academic circles, you would be viewed as absurd to believe that Luke actually was right. Now, once the evidence has come in, it would be absurd to be able to deny it. So what do skeptics do? They don't accept it or, or deny it. They just ignore it. They just find, move on to something else that they can attack. And that's typically what happens. And we still have to love them. Amen. All right, number five, the city of Jericho. Now, how many, how many, what happened in Jericho? Now, if you, if, you can't, if you can't answer that, you have to hand in your baptismal certificate, right? <laughs> if, if it was a room of pastors, I'd say hand in your credentials. But uh, we all know the story of Jericho, and this is one of the most made fun of stories in Scripture. And uh, I... You know, I used to set in, I mean, I used to set in the classroom when I was an atheist with a professor who was an alcoholic. He, about half the week, he'd come in drunk for class. A bunch of, and I'm not making fun of these people and I'm not criticizing them, I'm just telling you the room. And I had like a lot of guys who like wouldn't ever wash their hair because like they wanted to be organic. And they would only eat like organic food, you know, and they like if it wasn't organic, like they would starve to death before they would eat it. Right. But they would smoke like two packs of cigarettes a day and go drink <laughs> beer at the bar every day after work. So it's like, what are you doing? You know, and so these guys were like ultra, ultra anti-religion and all this kind of stuff. And we used to be in class. And I mean, like the, the, the professor would just constantly crack jokes about about the Bible and about Christians. And we had Christians in our class and he would point them out and ridicule them and just laugh at them and say, he would say literally like, it's so stupid for you to believe such a thing. Now, if that was a Christian professor and he was ridiculing an atheist, there'd be a lawsuit and that person could just quit college because they could retire from all the money they get from the lawsuit, right? 
And so, but yet, this is what was happening. And I was among them that was laughing and joking, but slowly the Lord began to convict me of these truths. And I began to go and share them with my professors. And they would just, initially, they would just argue with me, but, you know, I just kept talking. And they would be like, no, no, no. And I just keep talking. And I knew they were hearing me. And eventually, they just kind of get quiet. And they just kind of sit there with a stare on their face. And they'd say, you know, I, I don't have time to talk to you about this anymore. So they would just come under conviction. So anyway, between 1930 and 1936, John Garstang was an archaeologist in early times. He and his team actually uncovered the city of Jericho. It's been found. And this comes from his writings, uh, his book when he wrote about what he had discovered. He writes this. Now, let's uh, before we get to that, because you all are going to read it while I try to say something here. <clears throat> it, all, it gets really quiet and still, and then you're all like reading the screen. So what do we know about the walls of Jericho? They came, huh? Yeah, they were very thick and substantial, but how did they fall? They fell outward, right? How do most walls crumble? Inward, right? You see that? And so a lot of people said it's, it's, it's mathematically impossible for those walls to fall outward, but that's what the Bible said, and people fought it. Even some people who believe in the Bible. But this is what they found when they discovered the city. He says, as to the main fact, then, there remains no doubt. The walls fell outward so completely that the attackers would be able to clamber up and over the ruins into the city. Why so unusual? Because the walls of cities do not fall outwards, they fall inwards. And yet Joshua, in Joshua 6.20 we read, the wall fell down flat. Then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. The walls were made to fall, how? Outward. Now, if you read the book Patriarchs and, Prophet, Patriarchs and Prophets, what does she say about that? She says angels were pulling the walls down, right? And they were pulling the walls down flat so that the people could scammer up into the city and do everything uh, that they did, that God had commanded them. So here's some pictures. Of course, it's black and white because in the 1930s, that's the pictures they had. But uh, th here's some pictures of the ruins of the city. And... Uh, you can see, if you look very closely, I want, I'll show you this here in a minute from another picture. Um, but let me just go through this first. There were some other significant things that Scripture describes that were actually also confirmed through the archaeology. Number one, that the city was heavily fortified, and they learned that. It was not hard to figure that out. The attack occurred just after the harvest time in the spring. The inhabitants had no opportunity to flee with their food sheds. The siege was short. The walls were leveled and fell down outward flat. The city was not plundered because God told them what? He said, don't touch anything, right? Because it's defiled. And also, the city was what? It was burned. All of this was discovered and confirmed through archaeology. Now, there was another archaeologist, Kathleen Kenyon, who worked on the project after John Garstang had kind of backed away, and she kind of assisted him some. She says this, The destruction was complete. Walls and floors were blackened or reddened by fire, because they caught the city on fire. And every room was filled with fallen bricks, timbers, and household utensils, 
in most rooms, the fallen debris was heavily burnt. So why was the rooms filled with fallen bricks and timbers? Because the city was what? It was shaking, right? And everything, it was like an earthquake, but it was angels causing that destruction. And so everything the Bible said about the city happened just like it said. So here's one of the towers that is left as one of the ruins uh, discovered by Kathleen Kenyon, one of the Neolithic towers, guard towers there. And notice this. These are some of the, the jars of grain that they had in the city that were soared and they were broken open. And guess what? They were, there was food in there, but what was going on with the food? It was burned. It had burned up. It had been, been kind of burned and toasted because of the fire that was taking place. So it uh, supports, of course, the biblical account. So, uh, Dr. Bryant Wood, uh, he's uh, a very famous uh, author and one of the associates of biblical research and expert on archaeology of the city. He makes this statement, The evidence is already in. Three major expeditions to the site over the past 90 years uncovered abundant evidence to support the biblical account. So, guess what? The city of Jericho isn't just some little magical fairy tale anymore, is it? It's not just some silly story that might or might not have been true. Actually, everything was confirmed that it was true. Yes, you have Where a question? Where do you find that story in the Bible? It's in Joshua, Joshua. the book of Joshua. Mm -hmm. Yep. Is it a different version that says they fell flat, but they were falling flat this way, like this? Uh, I would have to find that, okay. but... Uh, yeah, but I know that the Spirit of Prophecy says that off the top of my head when you're asking me on the spot. Yeah, I believe if you look at it, the Hebrew, it, it describes flat mm -hmm, and outward falling. Yep. But I'll, have to, I'll look it up and I'll come back to you tomorrow. I apologize off the top of my head. I don't have it. So, yeah. Is it Hebrews? What does it say? I know it says it. I just I'd have to look it up. I haven't. Yeah, look it up and come back to me. I'm going to keep going here. So here's Dr. Wood beside also one of the collapsed walls. Just a picture of that. So I want you to know, notice this statement from a gentleman named Norman Geisler from the Baker Encyclopedia of Christian Apologetics. Norman Geisler. He's not an Adventist, but he's he writes a lot about. Uh, the, just the Christian apologetics, which is basically a defense of the Christian faith. He also uh, has a great knowledge of archaeology, and he has a number of books. They're not, they're not theological books. They're more evidence-based books for, for skeptics. So I would recommend, if you have an interest in that, to read some of his books. They're very, very good. He's a great scholar. He writes this, In every period of Old Testament history, we find that there is good evidence from archaeology that the Scriptures speak the truth. In many instances, the Scriptures even reflect first-hand knowledge of the times and customs it describes. While many have doubted the accuracy of the Bible, time and continued research have consistently demonstrated that the Word of God is better informed than its critics. In fact, while thousands of findings from the ancient world support in broad outline and often in detail the biblical picture, 
Not one incontrovertible find has ever contradicted the Bible. That's very fascinating, isn't it? Very fascinating. And so, look, I mean, when you take the tests that the skeptics want to put the Bible through to prove if it's credible or not, when you put a similar test to evolution and other theories that are popular today, they actually fail more than the Bible does. (laughs) It's, It's unbelievable. And you'll see some of that later this week. So number six is the Moabite stone. How many of you have ever heard of the Moabite stone? All right, just how many of you have not heard of the Moabite stone? How many of you just didn't raise your hand? All right, I'm just kidding. Sometimes people just don't raise their hand, but everybody's heard of it. The Moabite stone is also known as the Misha steel. Has anybody heard of that? Okay, it's the same, same thing, but this is very fascinating. It was discovered in 1868 in Jordan, about 20 miles east of the Dead Sea, so right in the city of Jordan. So for, skept- for years, skeptics described the, many of the battles that were fought in the Old Testament. They said, we can't find any record of them anywhere else except in the Bible. Okay? So let me, let me just present a kind of a scenario here. When I was in, I think it was about sixth grade, I got in a fight with this boy. I went to public school. And we got in a fight, and the teacher was out of the room. And I gave him a fat lip, and he gave me a black eye. Who won the fight? Hmm? Depends on who you ask, though, right? If you ask him, what's he going to say? He's going to be like, did you not see the the black eye I gave him? If you ask me, what am I going to say? Did you not see the fat lip he has? I mean, black eye, fat lip. Of course the fat lips, you know what I'm saying. If you ask people in the class, what are they going to say? Oh, they might say different things, right? Because they're from different angles. So the stories that are given are not likely going to match. Now, I have news for you. It didn't care. It didn't matter to the teacher because we both got three licks with the, with the board. Now, in those days, when I went to school, I'm not that old, but... Uh, when I went to school, public school, you got paddlings. This is down south in Alabama. And some of the teachers even drilled holes through the paddle. And uh, one time, I, there was one teacher, she, uh, I, I said some stupid joke in the class, and she, she just looked at me like this, and she went, outside! And so I went outside, and she comes out with a paddle, and she gets the teacher from across the hall. You always have to have a witness, you know. And she says, put your hands up in the wall. So I did it, and I, and I can see her out of the corner of my eye. And I see her, she puts both hands on the paddle. And she goes like this, and she gives me two cracks. And it really didn't hurt. But I, but I just kept my hands on She says, I'm giving you two. So, you know, like when you get the two, then you'd put your hands down, right? Well, I just kept my hands on the wall. And she says, why are you still standing there? Put your hands down. I said, well, have you given me the paddling yet? <laughs> and she, and she, she looks at me and she goes, go to the office. So I went to the office and I told the principal and he laughed. And then he sent me down. He said, go down to, he sent me to my football coach because I played football. So 
I go down to the football coach's uh, room, and he, uh, he says, what did you do? And I told him, and he laughed. And he said, just sit here till the end of class, and don't do it again. Like, anyway, <laughs> I don't know why I told you that story, but... So I had to wake somebody up. That's probably what it was. So these two, these two groups are fighting, right? Now you can imagine that they're going to tell two different what? Stories. So these battles are recorded in the book of 2 Kings chapters 1 and chapters 3 with the Moabites, right? Now, the discovery of the Moabite stone confirmed that the Bible accounts of these battles not only happened, but they completely matched the record that the Moabites left behind on this stone. It's recorded on this stone. And so the, what the Bible says happened, what the Moabite says happened, is the same thing. 2 Kings chapter 2, I think it was. Chapter 1, verse... Um, get there. 2 Kings, yeah, chapter 1 and 3. You can read about those battles. I don't have time to go through the chapter with you. But, but it also describes the literal ver- verbiage has the phrase, House of David, written on the Misha steel, which is evidence that he actually existed. Because for a long time, I mean, King David's one of the most famous characters in the Old Testament. For a long time, skeptics said that we don't even know that he really existed because they're always trying to create this doubt, right? But the Misha still also talks about King Omri. He was one of the Israeli kings from the book of 1 Kings. It also describes him on the Misha steel. It also mentions Yahweh as the God of the Israelites. And so, I mean, this is, all this is written and the skeptics are just blown away because here's something outside of the Bible that actually confirms what the Bible says. Here's an article from Time Magazine released in 1995, describing the Moabite stone. I'm just going to read this to you. It says, The skeptics claim that King David never existed is now hard to defend. Last year, the French scholar André Lemaire reported a related House of David discovery in Biblical Archaeological Review. His subject was the Misha steel, also known as the Moabite stone, the most extensive inscription ever recovered from ancient Palestine. Found in 1868 at the ruins of the biblical Debon and later fractured, the basalt stone wound up in the Lavour, where Lemaire spent seven years studying it. His conclusion, the phrase House of David, appears there as well. As with the Tel Dan fragment, which I'm going to talk about here in a few minutes, this inscription comes from an enemy of Israel boasting of a victory, King Misha of Moab, who, figured in the, who was figured in the Bible. There are now two 9th century references to David's dynasty, the other one being the Dantel steel, which I'll talk about in just a minute. Isn't that fascinating? So whether people want to believe that the Bible, that God is real or what, they cannot deny that David existed and that these battles and other events took place. Now I know most of you have heard of what? The Rosetta Stone. I've seen the Rosetta Stone with my own eyes at the British Museum in, in London. It, it was very, it's very large. I mean, it's very big. It's a huge stone. And of course, it was discovered in 1799 by Napoleon's men in Rosetta, or Rashin, Egypt, which is why it's called the Rosetta Stone. Its discovery paved the way to decipher the Egyptian hieroglyphics, which uh, understanding has been lost since the 4th century. Nobody knew how to read these things. 
They didn't understand them. But once you found the Rosetta Stone, it had three scripts on the stone, hieroglyphics. You say it so fast so many times, then you can't say it slow. Hieroglyphics, Demotic, which is common Egyptian, and Greek. And they were eventually deciphered in 1822 using the Rosetta Stone as a guide for how to decipher. Isn't this very fascinating? So you can see some of the, the hieroglyphics there and uh, up close. And it's just very exciting to me to see this. Now, more than 3,000 3, years of Egyptian history was unlocked, verifying hundreds of biblical accounts uh, and never one contradicting the other. So one of these stories that was discovered was the story of Joseph, where it talked about seven years of plenty and seven years of famine, which just is another confirmation that what was happening, what the Bible says was happening, was really happening. Amen? All right, the Cyrus Cylinder. How many of you have heard of this? All right, some of you. How many of you have not heard of this? All right, good. So the Cyrus Cylinder was uh, discovered in 1826, and it is it, when you look at it in pictures, it looks like it would be very large. But I've actually seen it also in the British Museum. I think I have a picture, actually. Maybe not. I do have a picture, but maybe not. So, but it's actually only about eight inches long. It's very small. It's a very small thing. And all the pictures, it looks large. But it's literally a history book of Cyrus's capture of Babylon as recorded in Daniel chapter 5 and also prophesied in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 45, if you have your Bibles, just look with me there. Isaiah chapter 45, and it starts in verse 1. Isaiah 45, 1, it says this, Thus says the Lord to His anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight, and I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hidden secret riches of the secret places. So if you study the full context of this, he's talking about Cyrus capturing what? Babylon. Okay. When he refers to the double gates, it's the Ishtar gates, which are the double gates that guarded the city of Babylon. Okay. When Isaiah wrote this, do you look at the timing that Isaiah wrote this? It was actually 180 years before Cyrus was ever even born. And yet he names him by what? By name. He says Cyrus in here. So he's making a prophecy. And he describes him very specifically. There's a very interesting film that came out. It's just called The Book of Daniel. Anybody ever seen that? It's, it's basically just the stories of Daniel, and it's basically almost the conversation is almost verbatim from Scripture. And it's very interesting. It's not like a hyped up Hollywood thing. But I'd encourage you to check that out. It's kind of cool on a Saturday night or something. But anyway, um, so the Cyrus Cylinder describes uh, these battles that took place where Babylon began to fall. And so Nebuchadnezzar was Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, and he was the king over Babylon during that fall. 
Now, what's fascinating is that uh, the the description. Well, let me just say. Well, I'll just say this first. It is confirms God's prophecy that Cyrus would free the Jews from the seventy-year Babylonian captivity. So basically, everything that the Bible describes happened. The Cyrus cylinder also confirms with the same story, the same uh, lines. It is exactly the same. And so it establishes also that it was in their intent to return to Jerusalem, which is described in the book of Ezra, chapter 6. All this is written in the Cyrus cylinder. And so for years, skeptics said the book of Daniel was always written after the fact, but the Cyrus cylinder confirms that it was a contemporary thing that it actually happened at the same time, and that what the Bible describes, what Daniel recorded, was exactly the same as what the Cyrus Cylinder talks about. It talks about the fall of Babylon when they went up under the gates of the city, and so forth. And so I've actually stood in the British Museum of, of History in London, and I've seen this thing with my own eyes. And I'll tell you, like it's very emotional to see these things in person. And it's very fascinating. I, I also saw <clears throat> a, um, they had, it was a temporary display. I was just lucky enough to be there, blessed enough to be there. I would say luck is something God forgot about. God doesn't forget about anything, amen? But there was a section of Nebuchadnezzar's palace wall that was there in the British Museum. It was very interesting. And it had the lion with the double wings, right? And so I actually I have a picture of that. I, I I'll put that in there for tomorrow, and I'll show you. But very very moving to see. You know, you hear these things all the time, and you talk about them, but when you actually see them, it's like whoa. And the British Museum, if you're ever there, um, that's the privilege. I get to go and preach all these places, and people spend thousands and thousands of dollars to fly everywhere to sit on beaches, and I do it all for free because the Lord pays for it, right? And uh, so I got to go there, and they have, they have dozens and dozens of varying forms of biblical archaeology. It is mind-blowing. You can spend days in that place. Very, very powerful. Number nine, and then we're going to have number ten, and then we're going to wrap up here for the day. But number nine is the Lakish letters. <clears throat> the Lakish letters were found in 1935 in the city of, guess what? Lakish in the ruins of an ancient guard room, and they were actually written in an ancient Hebrew text. So when some, whoever found them, they were like, wow, like this is something significant here, right? And so they were written, they found, in the 7th century B.C. and contain important information concerning the last days of the southern kingdom of Judah and its fall to, guess who? The Babylonians. So all of this was discovered through the content of the writing. The letters were dispatches from a Jewish military officer named Hoshea, Hoshea, who was stationed. I forget how to pronounce these names. I have to go back and refresh myself. Who was stationed at an opposite post north of Lachish? Very interesting. And uh, a little bit later, there were some potsherds found, and like the letters, they contained names and lists of the period just before the fall of Jerusalem. So basically, it was just. These were just military dispatches, records, and different things. But the impact is significant because once again it confirms that these things were happening and these places actually existed. 
That's a repeat, I apologize. So the Lakish letters confirmed the biblical accuracy of the fall of Jerusalem to King Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. And it describes it here in Jeremiah 34, 7, when the king of Babylon's army fought against Jerusalem and all the cities of Judah that were left against where? Lachish and Azekah, for only these fortified cities remained of the cities of Judah. So they were some of the last cities that stood against Nebuchadnezzar's army who came up against them. And these letters were discovered confirming that very fact. Very fascinating, yes? Amen. All right, I can see y'all are getting shifty on me. So there's also the Lachish Tell, which refers to a number of biblical names. You know what a tell is? It's like a tomb. It's like a, it's like a tombstone almost, like an internal tombstone. And it often marks, uh, it, it doesn't have to always be a tomb, but it's just like a giant rock picture is what it is. So this tell, uh, you can see the, the, the pictures here. And I've seen some of these in the British Museum as well. But it refers to, this tell talks about a number of biblical names like Abimelech, Melchizedek, and actually Hezekiah. And uh, very fascinating. All right, number 10 is the last one. I think it is. I might have one or two more. We'll see. But we'll be done by 10.30 for sure. The Tel Dan Steel was discovered in 1993. And the, the steels were used, the, you know, they would, a steel is just a big rock. That's all it is. And that's what they had to inscribe their stuff on. I mean, they didn't have uh, such access to paper and other things as we do today. So they would write stuff on big rocks and they would just store them in these little vaults in the palaces. But the steels were used to describe, uh, describe all kinds of important events that would have been taking place. Victories, battles. You know, transfer of power with kings, whatever it was. And this particular one was found, and it has the inscription, House of David, written on it. So the Dantel Steel talks about here the House of David. Yeah, I do have, I think, 12 actually. So the, number 11 is the Pilate Dedication Stone, which was discovered in 1961. Now, just a couple of years ago, I went to Rome. I was speaking in Bogenhofen, Austria, at the little seminary there. And I had my, my wife was with me, and we decided I found tickets where you could fly from Munich, Germany to Rome for like $50. And I found a cheap Airbnb that was like $45 a night. And I said, We're going. So we spent like three days in Rome. And I'm telling you, I probably walked about 50 miles. And I actually, I actually twisted my ankle twice in the same day, and my ankle was literally that big around, and it's like purple. And I'm just like, I'm just like, come on, honey, we got to get to the. <laughs> and so I just kept going, but um, we were in the Roman Cathedral Colosseum, and we had this tour guide. She was a young, uh, you know, kind of an earthy girl. And, you know, very much anti-religion, you could tell. And she was telling us um, about, about some of the games and things. And so I asked her the question. I said, so who were the gladiators? 
And she says, well, they were often, you know, like criminals and these kind of things. And I said, well, you know, history talks about how many of the early Christians were, um, were uh, thrown to lions and crucified and burned at the stake and those things. And I remember now she was actually, like everybody in, in Rome is Catholic. I mean, like you find the most hardened atheist in the city, and he's a Catholic. So she's Catholic, right? Catholic. But it's obvious that she's not. And she says, oh no. She says, that never happened. She says, it was, it was the Romans persecuting the Catholics. It was not, it was not you know, Catholics persecuting, you know, they, they deny that Catholics ever did any persecution of, of biblical Christians. And she says, it was all the Romans and they were attacking and persecuting the Christians. We went to the catacombs, uh, where it's the underground burials, and they said the same thing, that the, it was the Catholics being persecuted by the Romans, not any Christians who were not Catholics being persecuted. And I said, oh, okay, that's interesting to know, thank you. I didn't argue with her. I don't try to make public state things like that. But in the Colosseum of Rome, there was a stone found... Uh, that actually has the name Tiberius Pontius Pilatus. So it's the stone with Pontius Pilate's name stamped on it. And uh, it's very interesting because obviously we know who he is, right? And then you have the Dead Sea Scrolls, which many of you are familiar about with, and they actually just found some new ones. And I haven't done the full research on that, but I know they found some new ones that were, I forget which books they were, somebody may in here may know, uh, but I need to update that. So these were found in 1948 in a cave, and they contain all our parts of the Old Testament, except for the book of Esther, and they confirm the accuracy of the preservation of the Scriptures, sorry. And they match 99% to the King James that we hold in our hands today. Um, well, what, why not 100%? Because the 1% are variants in typically the equivalent of prepositional phrases like a, an, and the, and that's the 1%. So the, the actual content of the text is the exact same. I think of a text, and if I can remember it, I believe it's in Psalm 12, if I'm thinking correctly, and I hope I am because I don't want to... You know, when the preacher can't remember his verses, that's a problem, right? Uh, it may be another spot. Yeah, it is. Psalm 12, verse 6. It says, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of the earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation. How long? Forever. And so, I am confident. I mean... If we cannot establish confidence in the Scriptures themselves, then everything else is in question, right? Everything else is in question. But that promise right there is confirmed, I believe, through the Dead Sea Scrolls. Because Mark Finley tells a story of the Dead Sea Scrolls being on display. It was Isaiah chapter 53. We know what that chapter is, right? The description of the suffering of Messiah. And he said that he took his Bible, because he, he can read Hebrew, obviously, he understands that. 
And he was reading what he could off the scroll that was in the case. And he was reading it in his Bible. And he said he got chills because it was just perfectly the same, exact. And the same thoughts are there and the same descriptions and the same emotions in the text were, were saved there. And so, uh, some of the, some of the, you know, a lot of the translation, people, people think that like the Catholics messed with it and that kind of thing, but those translations were locked in vaults and people didn't mess with them for a very long time. And much of the translation, when they were translating, and they did it different ways, but in one instance, I read this, that they would have like a hundred scribes and they would translate the exact same passage, right? And if any one of them messed up that passage, guess what they had to do? They had to shred it and start over again. I mean, this was a very laborious work. And they made sure that they were very meticulous and preserving the Scriptures down through time. And that's why I have confidence that this book right here, th this passage, is the promise from God that His Word's going to be preserved. We, we don't need to doubt that. Now, I want, I want you to see something here. Um, basically, manuscripts, manuscripts are copies of the Bible. Okay, And when manuscripts agree... Uh, Manuscripts will agree no matter who prepared them or what they were or where they were found. The Dead Sea Scrolls provide a basis of comparison from a thousand years before the manuscripts were written. I want to tell you about five things at one time. I'm trying to do it very carefully. They were very meticulous in the translation, which preserved the text, verifying there's been no substantial change in the last two thousand years. Uh, here's what I was wanting to get to. There are 5,366 manuscripts of the Bible to compare and draw information from. Most of those date back to the 2nd or 3rd century, so just a short time after the original ones were written. Now, let me just back up here. Now, here's what happens. They will find copies of, the of whatever document it is. This is the standard test of historicity for any document. Okay? Everybody with me? So, you will take say, the Bible, and you find all these copies that were written 50 years after, 70 years after, 100 years after, 200 years after, and you line them all up and you compare them, okay? And you find out how different are they from one another, okay? So here's how you find the test that is the most accurate. The more copies you have and the few variants you have means what? the more accurate it is. The fewer copies you have and the more variants you have means that it's probably less accurate. Does that make sense? Okay? Everybody with me so far? Two of the most famous documents of history, Homer's Iliad. How many of you had to read that in school? Right? And Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars. Those two are, are hailed as some of the most trustworthy, most accurate sources of history that we can find from ancient times. Okay? You ready? There are 5,366 manuscripts of the Bible to compare and draw information from, and most of those date back to the 2nd or 3rd centuries. There are only 643 copies of Homer's Iliad, and there are only 10 copies of Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, 
and the earliest manuscript was made more than a thousand years after the original. Both of these are considered very credible and trustworthy historical documents. And guess what? The Bible has fewer variants than those, the copy of the manuscripts. It's very interesting. So, with that being said, I mean, if you would ask most secular historians what's the two most uh, credible, trustworthy documents of history, they'll point to these two. Most of them will point to these two as the highest. And yet we find that we have more evidence for the credibility of the New Testament specifically, and the Old Testament is very close behind. There's just, it's just older and there's fewer copies. But the New Testament specifically than any other secular source of history. And yet, people still deny its credibility. Very interesting. So, if we have manuscripts that tell us what most of the Bible said more than 2,000 years ago, then that is before the time when any tampering or corruption would have taken place. Does that make sense? Therefore, the Old and New Testaments are actually the most reliable documents in religious or secular history, and we can trust the Bible to be truth. Amen? Why do people have such a problem with that? It's very simple. Because the Bible talks about their conscience, and their conscience is guilty. And they don't want to deal with accountability to a higher being. When it's very easy, if we'll just submit our wills to Him and be willing to accept what He's offering, a way of escape, then there's no problem there. Amen? So one last thing, and we'll close. We have one minute. What do all of these dates have in common? The ones that I shared with you. Huh? They're recent, but something more specific than that. If you read the seminar handbook. Yes, that's true. If you read the seminar booklet description, you would know. They are all after the year. After the year 1798. When God marked through Bible prophecy and world events the beginning of the time of the end. When mankind, through the, if you were here yesterday, through the French Revolution, became very skeptical. The moment he became skeptical, God says, right, here's the evidence. Just take a look. And he did it through archaeology. He did it through prophecy and many other means of evidence. How many can say amen to that, right? Our final text this morning, Luke 19.40, Jesus said, I tell you, if my disciples keep quiet, the very stones will cry out. Now, I don't know that he, I don't know that he was referring to archaeology, but it's still cool, right? You've got to admit that it's cool, amen? And certainly, are the rocks crying out today? They are certainly crying out today. Jesus if he's only a moral teacher, offers you power. No moral teacher offers you power to follow his teaching except Jesus. Because Buddha offers enlightenment. Confucius found wi offers wisdom. Muhammad offers a way of life. But only Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. Amen? Amen. And we praise the Lord for that. And uh, all of these guys on the deathbed basically said, I've not found the truth. But Jesus says, I am the truth. 
How many want to follow the evidence? Does the evidence speak today? Are we thanks to be Christians and Seventh-day Adventist Christians? We have an even greater truth than, than the basic understanding of Christianity today. What a privilege to be living in these times. But let's not keep that to ourself. Let's do what? Share it and be a light. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the evidence because it speaks loud and clear. We ask your spirit to be with us, to draw close to us as we continue forward in this journey, as we look at the evidence and it gives us more and more confidence in your word and in you. So we praise you and thank you. And we ask all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.